0: Here is the tomb of the Supreme John, who is said to be Pope, for so he was called. Quote by John the Deacon, as translated by Horace K. Mann, and as read by Ethan of Play History. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning... <laughs> Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we move towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 93, John to Victor. In the last episode, we began our speedrun of the papacy up to the ascension of Henry IV by discussing the era of the Ottonian dynasty from the point of view of the popes. In effect, the story is a political contest between the aristocracy of the city of Rome, represented variously by the Tusculum or the Crescenti families, depending on who was on top at the time, versus the interference of the Germanic Atonian emperors of the Romans. The Ottonians probably felt a genuine religious duty to ensure good governance of the papacy, but as outsiders to the city, they seem to have utterly failed to understand the political conditions on the ground. For example, Pope John XIII was seen by many northern Europeans, and indeed many in the city, as an uncontroversial man who was cleaning corruption out of the church. What he was actually doing was stacking the clergy and administration with his own crescenti relatives, something which was behind the rise of that family to major prominence. While there were genuine problems with the administration of the church and the city of Rome, The actions of the Ottos seem somewhat remarkable for utterly failing to do much of anything right in the city, as well as starting to set an unfortunate precedent of Roman crowds being slaughtered by German armies, which did nothing to make the Romans, uh, enjoy the interference of the Germans in any way. This all climaxed at the end of our last episode with the pontificate of Sylvester II a kind and well-educated man whose reputation among historians and the catholic church is equaled only by the level of hatred he garnered among the romans simply by being a creature of otto iii when a rebellion broke out in tivoli against imperial authority otto easily crushed it and decided to show the city mercy this oddly enough caused a rebellion in rome led by the crescenti family because tivoli was seen as the only local competitor to roman commerce and the romans wanted tivoli raised to the ground Otto and Sylvester were unable to retake Rome before Otto's untimely death, probably due to being a Frank in Italy. Though some people suggest malaria. As I said at the end of the last episode, with Otto gone, the aristocrats of Rome seem to have lost much of their malice for Sylvester, who was allowed to return to the city and quietly live out the rest of his pontificate. One thing I want to emphasize before I move on is how different this whole picture is from what we saw in the episodes devoted specifically to the Atonians. Which is to say, this whole the church hates the Ottonians thing, is very Italy-specific. You'll remember, the Ottos viewed service to the church as pivotal to their rule, both from an ideological standpoint, given their propaganda of their reigns as being pictures of Davidic kingship, but also on a practical level of the clergy staffing the imperial administration and helping to directly govern an increasingly large portion of the empire. So this wasn't the Ottos being anti-clerical. The church north of the Alps loved the Ottos the way middle-aged men loved Paul Simon. And yet, south of the Alps, in the home of the church, the opposite was the case. It was very much a cultural and political conflict, something that I suspect was based on a set of misunderstandings that just kind of snowballed over time. You know, one massacre of Roman crowds at a time. But that's in the past, maybe. Otto III has died, and Sylvester died shortly afterwards. Otto III died childless. So though the new emperor is from the Ottonian dynasty, he's from a cadet branch. Known to us as Henry II, and known to the church as St. Henry the Exuberant, let's see if this new king can turn a page on this relationship. From the Roman perspective, the death of Otto was a godsend. With the empire in turmoil, John Crescentius, current head of the family, quickly asserted control and had John XVII elected pope. This latest pope, John, was another non-entity who didn't do much of note, though he took an interest in evangelizing to Eastern Europe, a pet project of Henry II. He was followed by John the 18th, of whom I could say exactly the same thing. This lack of any action out of Rome is noteworthy, because at this time, Saracen pirates were raiding the Italian coasts, plagues were sweeping the city, and Henry II was involved in a full-on civil war in Italy. It seems clear that, one, the popes were not given much latitude for independence, merely administering the local clerical bureaucracy, and two, the crescenti were clearly working to remain on friendly terms with Henry, who was probably all too willing to let them, so long as he wasn't bothering them in Rome. They cooperated on some projects, they kept Rome quiet, everyone stayed in their corners. Notably, however, after his victory in the Civil War, Henry returned to Germany without visiting Rome, probably due to not wanting to threaten the crescenti. And this meant that he didn't get crowned German Emperor of the Romans yet. John Eighteenth is also notable for abdicating to a monastery shortly before his death. This is an important precedent in legal terms of papal governance, since it establishes that abdications are a thing. And also, it was nice of the Crescenti to let their figurehead enjoy some time off the leash before he died. Sergius IV was next, and under him, the Crescenti policy of quietly guarding their own corner continued. With Henry unable to visit Rome to be crowned emperor, but also not being tempted to attack it by any overt provocations. However, all was not well in the city. I'm thin on details, but it seems that the old contest between the Crescenti and the Tusculum was not settled, and at least some in the city and the clergy were willing to fight the Tusculoni corner. Sergius and John Crescenti died within a short time of each other, something which some have noted is possibly suspicious, though there's no, like, hard evidence beyond that coincidence and the advantage that was taken of it. That advantage being that while the Crescenti were sorting out the succession, a new Tuscalone pope was elected, Benedict VIII. He was, of course, immediately opposed by a Crescenti-backed antipope and forced to flee. But this gave Henry the opening he needed. Henry rolled in with an army in 1014 in support of Benedict VIII, he deposed the antipope and installed Benedict, who promptly crowned him German Emperor of the Romans. The two held a joint synod where they condemned simony, promoted clerical celibacy, added the word filioque to the Nicene Creed, and decreed that they were best buds. Then Henry and his army headed north and got out of Benedict's hair. PODCAST FOOTNOTE The antipope, who called himself Gregory, pulled one of the weirder attempted Hail Marys in papal history after being deposed. Having been deposed in Rome by Henry, he fled to a foreign court to be reinstated, which is, you know, what you do, that's normal enough, except that the court he fled to was Henry's court in Germany, the guy who had just deposed him. Henry apparently politely heard him out and promised to look into the matter, and then we never heard from Gregory ever again. I'm sure that Henry sent him to a nice monastery upstate, where he had big fields where he could run and play with the other deposed popes. End podcast footnote. Another podcast footnote. Adding philoquy to the Night Scene Creed, as read in the Catholic Mass, is one of the fundamental disagreements between the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Catholic Church today. For anyone who doesn't know what filiqui means, it means of the Son, which might not sound like it's that important. But adding philoquy to the Night Scene Creed, as read in the Catholic Mass, is one of the fundamental disagreements between the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Catholic Church today. It is interesting how my different sources talk about this. Maybe it's a coincidence, but the papal-focused sources don't mention that this came from Henry, while the imperial ones do. Is the church trying to forget that this happened? Their argument to this day is basically, it's not a big deal. Uh, It just kind of happened. Uh, We all still believe the same things. It just sort of naturally came up on our side, and we shouldn't make that big deal about it. And the Orthodox say, do we believe the same things, though? You added philoquy. Who knows what that means? And the Catholics say, yes, we believe the same things, and it goes on and on. I'm sure that there's a religious scholar out there who could explain what it is the Orthodox fear in terms of the Trinitarian implications of filioque, or why the Catholics are so insistent on keeping it if it makes everyone else so angry and it doesn't matter anyway. But I am not that person, and I don't really care that much. Just so you know, other people do seem to care about this, so I figured you should know, because it's, it's going to come up. End podcast footnote. Given his installation procedure, it shouldn't surprise us that Benedict was pretty friendly to the emperor and was largely free to pursue his own policies in terms of church doctrine. As such, he promoted the anti-corruption Cluniac reforms, of which we have spoken somewhat so often, and he promoted the Peace of God movement, which we've also spoken. Both these reform movements had different real-world policy implications, with the former focusing on ensuring behavior and educational standards amongst the clergy while the latter encouraged the church hierarchy to act in defense of the poor against aristocratic brutality. Both movements, in addition to being somewhat anti-aristocratic, served to encourage personal piety in individual Christians. This is as opposed to other sort of assumptions that were around that all the praying and good behavior was left to monks, and priests and everyone else could just kind of get on with their lives. This new idea gave people both some threat in the sense that they were responsible for their own behavior, other people couldn't do things for them to a certain extent, but also gave them a stake in having a relationship with the divine. These uh, movements also encouraged the participation of the clergy in secular matters in some ways, while also subtly pushing forward the idea of the centralization of the church. So, you know, watch this space. On a more practical level, the fact that Henry agreed to continue his hands-off policy regarding Rome, beyond that, you know, one measly invasion, meant that Benedict needed a more local power base to protect his interests beyond the Tuscaloni. He found it in a group of heavily armed pilgrims from northern France who happened to be passing through. Apparently from the Normandy region, these armored horsemen were really good in a fight and had, you know, found work down the road in the chaotic mess of southern Italy. But they are good Catholic boys, don't you know, and since they're passing through, They were willing to do some work for the Pope in their off time. Work that involved things like, you know, crushing the crescenti, or helping him work with the Pisans and Genoans to outfit a massive fleet and ground force to drive the Saracen pirates off of Sardinia. The Pisans and the Genoese, who made up the bulk of the fleet, subsequently started fighting each other for control of the island, but the important thing is that it was solidly Christian again. I am sure the Normans will just go back to France now that they've got their money, and we will never hear from them again. Benedict died in 1024 and was succeeded by his brother, John XIX, who basically continued his policies. That simple sentence, however, contains multitudes, because these two brothers weren't just from some random family. As noted, they were from the Tuscaloni family, and in fact were part of a triumvirate that was ruling Rome for, you know, several decades. Benedict, born Theoflact, was the elder brother and pursued a priestly career, while his younger brother, Romanus, was the Count of Tusculum and ruled the city on a day-to-day basis. The youngest brother, Alberic, got the congenial duty of continuing the legitimate family line by making children, as you do. As Theophilact-slash-Benedict was basically head of the family, he was, of course, able to pursue his own policies, and thus was not seen as a puppet, and he didn't behave like a puppet. That said, he was obviously going to represent Tuscalone interests, but he does seem to have been relatively even-handed about things such that only the crescenti really directly opposed his rule, at least at first. Now Romanus was an entirely secular person when his brother died. He was the count at the time, but that never stopped anyone before. He stepped down as count and was promoted up the clerical Corsus Honorum over the course of a day, and he took the papal name John, at which point Alaric was allowed to stop having kids, I guess for a minute, and become the new Count of Tusculum. This all brings us back to the beginning of the last paragraph. John's interests were largely taken up by an only somewhat successful attempt to reconcile with the Eastern Church. He was accused at one point of accepting a bribe in the course of these negotiations, with which, you know, disrupted things, but ultimately a tentative settlement was reached with the concessions on both sides, notably in this case and this is going to be important, though it sounds really minor, Latin Rite churches were opened in Constantinople in exchange for Orthodox Rite churches in southern Italy being allowed to continue their practices even when their territories were conquered by Latin lords. In other words, as the Byzantine possessions in southern Italy contracted, pressed by Saracen pirates, Lombard dukes, and, oh hey, those Norman warlords, the Pope agreed that the conquered people would be allowed to continue practicing as they had done in the past. Watch this space. From our point of view, the most consequential action by John was administrative. The issue of the Abbey of Cluny had been percolating. When established, the Abbey had been placed under the ownership of the Pope directly, meaning it wasn't supposed to be under the jurisdiction of any local lords or bishops. This was a unique situation at the time intended to avoid interference in the Abbey by local power brokers, including the founding Duke's own children. Pope John confirmed this situation, much to the annoyance of the local bishop. The idea here that the popes represented a potential bastion against corruption gained currency as a result of the growth of the influence of the Cluniac Abbey, laughable as it may seem to us given what we know about recent papal history. One other minor detail in John's reign is that upon the childless death of Henry II, John supported the election of Conrad II as German Emperor of the Romans in 1027. Conrad had only a tangential family tie to the Ottonians, so this support was important And the papacy and the empire were able to retain their friendly relations. As discussed in our speedrun of the emperors, this also undermined the idea of direct succession in the empire by reviving the up-until-then somewhat archaic idea of elections as a legitimate source of authority in the empire. So, you know, watch this space. John died in 1032 and was succeeded by another Theophilac, this time the youngest son of Albrecht, who took the papal name of Benedict IX. This may have been a mistake on a variety of levels, Beyond the accusation that Alberic gasped, bribed people to get his son on the papal throne, an activity which we have never seen before in this series, Theophylact was all of 20 years old. I'm not sure why Alberic or his other sons did not take on the task, which would probably have been more sensible, especially given what's about to happen, but maybe Alberic was just too fond of having children by this point. In any case, Theophylact, or Benedict as I will call him from here on out, was, you know, 20. As with the other baby hopes we have seen, whether through being too young to deal with the temptations of power or being too inexperienced to understand how to utilize the power at his disposal, Benedict became unpopular very quickly. That said, on a broader level, the Tusculani had now elected three popes in a row, and it was also inevitable that the other families in the city were getting a little leery about their continued power. Whatever the real causes, the chroniclers of the time accused him of all sorts of crimes, up to and including, let me see here, bestiality orgies. And I think it goes without saying that I'm skeptical if all the things that he was accused of actually happened. That said, I think it's fairly undeniable that he was wildly unpopular, a situation that both caused and was exacerbated by these accusations. He lasted initially until 1044, mostly due to continued support from Conrad II and his son and successor, Henry III. But in that year, an uprising forced him out of the city and Sylvester III was elected to replace him. Sylvester III was, you'll be surprised to learn, a member of the Crescenti family. He lasted two very unstable years, uh, characterized by pretty much continued street battles, at which point Benedict and his forces returned to Rome, and Sylvester fled. However, Benedict wasn't any more able to uh, end the street fighting, and since he couldn't maintain his grip of the city in any way he wanted to marry his cousin like you do, he abdicated in favor of his godfather, an apparently devout priest named John Gratian in return for the payment of some debts. John Cration, along with his strong supporter Hildebrand, wanted to be rid of Benedict, and so they paid the bribe, and John took the name of Gregory VI. And now we have three living popes, with two of them being Tuscaloni and a third being Crescenti. As you might imagine, Gregory was not able to secure control over the papacy. Street fighting continued. As you also might suspect, Benedict's desire to marry his cousin was not requited, and so Benedict headed back to Rome, seeking to oust Gregory. Since that other thing hadn't worked out, he might as well be Pope again. And so did Sylvester. At which point, the body of the clerical administration called time on the whole thing and sent word to Henry III to come on down and sort this mess out, please. (sighs) Henry proceeded down with his army and called a synod where the three cases were heard. Benedict had almost no sympathy and was quickly sentenced to a monastic prison, though he himself escaped custody at this time. Sylvester's election was seen as illegitimate, and he was condemned, though in practice he was just bumped back to his previous position as bishop. Gregory's case was seen as more difficult and even tragic. Gregory was personally popular, but given the money he had paid to Benedict in order to take on the office, Gregory was accused of simony. Gregory freely admitted paying the money, but argued that it was necessary to rid the church of Benedict. The bishops of the synod, while obviously sympathetic to the motivation given the person involved, agreed that it was still an act of simony and asked him to step down, which he did. Along with his devoted supporter Hildebrand, Gregory went into exile in Germany, where he died the next year. If this had been foul play, we definitely would have been told about it by Hildebrand, who was not known for mincing words, so we can probably assume it was stress and old age that did the poor guy in. Henry selected a German, Clement II, to fix this mess. But uh, Clement II died after ten months, mostly spent on procession around Italy with Henry. So, moving on. Not entirely sure what to do now, Henry requested the bishops of the church tell him who to install. Ultimately, they chose Gregory VI, but they took so long to deliberate that he had died by then, and Henry had lost patience with this extended process, and selected a German named Popo and sent him to Rome. The Romans were annoyed at having Henry just arbitrarily pick someone, and the Counts of Italy were also a little annoyed by at this point by Henry's somewhat heavy handed assertions of imperial control during his visits. And so it was that when Benedict, inevitably, showed up again, the people of Rome and the Margrave of Tuscany let him take the papal throne. Again. Unable to leave Germany, Henry escorted Popo to the border and sent the Pope to the Margrave of Tuscany, along with word to install him as Pope. The Margrave, who you'll remember had just installed Benedict, said no. And so Popo went back to Germany, where he met a very angry Henry, who wrote a very Henry angry letter and sent Popo back to Tuscany. Now, this letter, it was extremely angry and rather threatening. So the Margrave kind of sighed and sent troops and installed Popo as Pope Damasus II. And Pope Damasus II, having traveled back and forth across the continent and the Alps multiple times at this point, died several months later. Probably of malaria. This is, however, the last we'll see of Benedict. Thankfully. After much deliberation, Bruno of Toul was selected as the next pope. Now, Toul is a small and fairly insignificant diocese on the borders between West and East Francia, but the bishops there, as a result, had outsized importance. Their troops helped secure the border region and were, as a result, experienced and in demand for various expeditions. Bruno first came to imperial attention as a young cleric leading the Episcopal troops in Italian campaign under Conrad II. From there, Bruno was elected bishop and governed his diocese well through notably hard times, warding off various invasions, civil wars, and the famines that resulted from the resulting depredations of the troops. As a devotee of good governance, Bruno fell under the sway of the Cluniac movement, something that further endeared him at court. He was also appointed by that court as an envoy to West Francia, under which duty he secured a lasting peace between the two sister kingdoms. It was possibly in the wake of that assignment that he was at court in time for the Council of Worms, or a synod of German bishops meeting with Roman representatives to choose the next pope. Obviously, he was chosen to be said new pope, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about him which he accepted, but only on the condition that he actually be elected in Rome by a lawful papal election, which is to say, via acclamation by an assembly of the clergy and people of the city, and not by a bunch of bishops from half a continent away. Needless to say, this very politic statement endeared him greatly to the Italian clergy in attendance, who rushed back to the city to make the arrangements. On his way down to Italy, Bruno took a little detour and made time to meet with Abbot Hugh of Cluny. During their meeting, Hugh recommended a young monk in his entourage, Hildebrand. After the death of Gregory VI, Hildebrand had wandered a bit and eventually made his way to Cluny, where he spent a couple of years learning at the font of the New Reform Movement. Hildebrand would later say he regretted not spending more time there, but Bruno likely needed an in with the Italian clergy, and Hugh likely knew that Hildebrand was an adept politically, a native Roman, an extremely able administrator, and at this point a reformist true believer. Bruno left with Hildebrand in tow and proceeded to Rome. They arrived dressed as pilgrims, and given the amazing optics, the imperial support, the absolute mess that preceded them, and the recommendation of the Roman representatives to the Council of Worms, the Roman people duly acclaimed Bruno as Pope Leo IX in 1049. Leo is one of those Pope people who is a capital B, big deal. An out-and-out idealist, if not ideologue, Leo condemned simony and favored clerical celibacy but this time he really meant it. Cracking down on corruption in this case did not result in the promotion of an Italian noble family at the expense of others, something that was possible because the Tuscaloni and the Crescenti were both kind of worn out by the last few decades of fighting. Theologically, he is well regarded, and his writings are often used as precedents in the upcoming years. From an international perspective, his reputation is, well, let's just get into it, shall we? With papal and sometimes imperial support, those Norman mercenaries we'd been talking about had gone from humble pilgrims to mercenaries to mercenary captains to going into business on their own, if you take my meaning, in a few short decades. Once they had their own territory, they began conquering their Lombard neighbors and then set about attacking the Eastern Roman possessions of Southern Italy, their army supplied by a steady stream of second and third sons from Normandy proper, seeking their own little piece of land to call their own, complete with a gaggle of peasants to do their bidding a simple dream but a powerful one the eastern romans were of course less than pleased about this and sent envoys to the pope asking him to stop the attacks as they normans were such good catholic boys the pope agreed that these normans were getting a bit too big for their britches and brought together an army of local italian city armies and a large group of germanic mercenaries he led the army himself against the normans who were desperate to avoid fighting the pope nonetheless the negotiations failed and battle was joined A battle the Normans easily won, as the poorly trained and disciplined largely militia army, with a fractured command coming from dozens of places, ran into the finest heavy cavalry in the early Middle Ages. The Pope was captured by the Normans, who were extremely effusive in their apologies for horribly slaughtering his weak and pathetic army, and inconveniencing him like this, but also, they did not let him go until he legitimized their conquests. Legitimizing their conquests had the silver lining of allowing the Normans to insist, insist, that their new subjects had to follow the Latin Church liturgy. So that was, you know, something in terms of papal power, except allowing that insistence violated the earlier agreement made with the Orthodox Church under Pope John the 19th. The patriarch in Constantinople duly reneged on his part of that deal and closed down the Latin churches in that city. An ambassador sent to smooth over the situation instead excommunicated the entire Eastern Church, an act that was, of course, reciprocated, and was going to go down in history as one of the worst diplomatic efforts ever. The 1058 Schism between the Eastern and Western Churches has, in fact, gone down in history as the Great Schism. But to be clear, no one at the time knew it was going to be the largest rupture in Christian history. All of the religious issues that existed at the time, and you know, to a certain extent still, including differences over clerical celibacy, the philoquy, the primacy of Rome, all these had been open conversations for decades, and no one at the time saw them as deal-breakers separating the two groups from both being in communion as mutually agreed Christians. This political break over southern Italy didn't need to be the straw that broke the camel's back. But it turned out to be, as both sides had other things going on and were no longer willing to put the effort into fixing a break that persists to the present day, and which would, as we will see in this show, lead to more than its fair share of tragedies. As far as Leo was concerned, he couldn't know any of this. He was attempting to just get out of prison, and once he did, he didn't last long. The chroniclers, who I should note absolutely adore Leo, but are also maybe a little bit pro-Norman, say that the defeat broke him emotionally. He felt he had sinned terribly by fueling an army against fellow Christians, and ultimately died shortly after returning to Rome, possibly due to stress and age, possibly also a result of his self-imposed penances. What followed was undoubtedly tightly choreographed. A delegation of Roman clerics, led by Hildebrand, who by now effectively ran the papal administration, walked to Germany to request the emperor appoint Gerhard, bishop of Eaststadt, as the next pope. Eaststadt? Anyway, why him? Why Gerhard? Well, he was a reformer, he was well-regarded, and, oh yeah, he was the emperor's closest advisor. So, you know, they may have gotten some advance notice of who they, wanted to pick. In another obviously choreographed scheme, Gerhard accepted the emperor's nomination, but only if the emperor returned lands the empire had taken from the church. He was, after all, a good servant of the church. This the emperor did, thus making himself look good, but also making Gerhard look good, and thus Gerhard and Hildebrand returned to Rome. Gerhard was duly acclaimed by the people and clergy of Rome, and enthroned by the local bishops, taking the papal name Victor II. Being a close friend and advisor of Henry III, Victor was deeply involved in court politics, and was given wide latitude by the emperor. He was invested essentially as the governor of all Italy, and in that role attempted to administer justice and maintain order in the territory. With Hildebrand by his side, Victor continued the religious policies of Leo, clamping down on corruption and sexual activity amongst the clergy. For reasons that I am not clear on, however, he didn't feel he was being well-treated by the Romans. He was on one of his many trips to court to complain about this when Henry III died. Henry III had, you may remember, a son. But he was a very young boy at the time of his father's death, and so a regency would be needed. Who to run it? Who would maintain the power of the empire against the barons and dukes of Germany while the emperor was a boy? And who could help contain the only recently quieted situation in Italy? Who could be trusted? The boy's mother, to be sure, the empire had a recent tradition of strong queenly regencies. But who else could be found to help? Why, hey, isn't that the pope here, in court, right now? And so it was that Pope Victor II and Empress Agnes began a regency for the young Henry IV, as Hildebrand sits back in Rome running the administration of the city. This all might, you know, end up being important, but that is for next episode. I think a summary of all this is deeply needed. In today's episode, we started with the Crescenti having a seemingly firm grip on the papacy after the death of Otto III and the failure of the emperors to subdue Rome. Both powerful forces, the Empire and the Crescenti, both tried to keep on their patch and out of each other's way. This situation remained seemingly stable until John Crescentius and his pope, Sergius IV, coincidentally died around at the same time, why not? Seizing the chance, the Tuscalonies seemed to have allied with the reformist clergy in the city to elect Benedict VIII. Though installed by an imperial expedition, as both the head of the Tuscalone family and the Pope, Benedict was able to be his own person, and did a decent job, as did his brother John XIX. Broadly orthodox, with slight reformist tendencies, these two popes pursued a strong alliance with the empire, and the emperors, Henry II and Conrad II, generally avoided interfering with Roman politics during this time. They also used Norman mercenaries to fight the Crescenti, something which had consequences. By the time we get to a third Tuscaloony family member, however, things kind of fell apart. Made Pope at only 20 years old, Benedict IX can be best characterized as unstable and mercurial, both in terms of his rule and possibly his personality. To cut a very long story short, he was Pope something like four separate times, but was repeatedly toppled by the Crescenti, or sold the office to his godfather, or he was toppled by the emperor, and finally was removed from office by the same local margrave that had installed him in the first place. With basically the entire city exhausted by these events, the emperors Henry II and III were able to form an understanding with the aristocracy and clergy of Rome, whereby the two sides agreed on german compromise candidates that would be acceptable to the empire, pursue mildly reformist agendas, and most importantly, would respect local political machinery and traditions. The key figure of this became a monk named Hildebrand, who had a vital role in the administration of the city. Hildebrand was brought in by Pope Leo IX. Another one of these German popes, he was a major reformer who pursued a strongly Cluniac agenda. But he also tried to rein in the now extremely powerful Norman lords of southern Italy. He led an army against them, was defeated, and apparently died from grief at the spilling of Christian blood. His successor, Victor II, had been a key advisor to Henry III and was paying court a visit when Henry happened to die. Victor was subsequently placed, along with the boy's mother, in control of the regency of Emperor Henry IV. Those who know... Know that we are heading towards something big. But for those who don't know, the key things to hold in your mind are these the Roman and imperial political machinery had arrived at a seemingly stable, but relatively new consensus both internally and externally, and between each other. The families of Rome are still there. Reform is in the air, as the Cluniac reforms and the Peace of God movement encourage everyday individuals to see themselves as having duties and responsibilities to God beyond basic law and order. Further afield from the last few episodes, the political situation in Germany seems stable, after several generations of centralizing reforms by the Salian dynasty. But under the surface, the barons and dukes are resentful of being excluded from power. The economy is growing by leaps and bounds, leading to increased power in the merchant elites of cities, especially in Italy and the Low Countries. West Francia is starting to stabilize under the Capetian dynasty, while England is being ruled by the inept Edward the Confessor and the much more competent House of Godwin. On the empire's eastern borders, intractable wars with the Slavs of Poland and Bohemia, as well as the Magyars of Hungary, have gone on seemingly unendingly for years, but may have reached an end under Henry III. Only time will tell. The board is now set. The players are in their seats. Next time out, we will begin the story with the childhood of Henry IV. Thanks for listening.